Cryptocurrencies are not only a financial instrument. They're a new platform for building applications. The blockchain allows for new solutions to digital property management, micropayments, hedge fund incentives, and advertising fraud. The cryptocurrency platforms with the most traction are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin has no central leader and is going through some growing pains with governance issues. Ethereum is led by the charismatic Vitalik Buterins, so there is more momentum when it comes to trying to resolve governance issues. Bitcoin and Ethereum are not competing instruments. They fulfill different technical purposes. Under current conditions of algorithm development and network infrastructure, neither Bitcoin nor Ethereum can accomplish the dreams that one day will be realized because of the problems of distributing transaction information across nodes in the system. If we compared cryptocurrencies to the internet, we would not even be in the days of dial-up yet. Consensus is a venture production studio that is working on several projects within the blockchain space. Mike Golden is a software developer with Consensus, and he joins the show to talk about blockchain applications today, in 2017, where we are and where we're going. It was a wide-ranging conversation. I hope to have Mike back in the future so we can go deeper on some of the topics that we glossed over, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Mike Golden is a software developer with Consensus. Mike, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much for having me. We've done a bunch of shows on the architecture of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other blockchain technologies. We're starting to get into some shows about the applications of cryptocurrencies. And what I mean by that is, as I'm sure you knew all along when you've been working on these things, these cryptocurrencies are not just tokens to be spent and speculated like normal currencies. They're actually entire application platforms. Explain why cryptocurrencies are not just a financial tool, but they're actually a primitive to build entire computer systems with. Yeah, definitely. So I actually did not get into crypto until I got into Ethereum. So I had heard about Bitcoin, like I knew what Bitcoin was, but I was just never like that, that interested in it. You know, I, I had plenty of ways to send money around to my friends. And then what happened was my, like, my crypto story was I was applying for a summer job with the NSA, but I failed my polygraph for reasons you know, we don't need to get into. And then I was just looking for work. There was this random company called Consensus, which happened to be a few blocks from my apartment. They were looking for people to write these things called smart contracts. At that time, there was nobody who really knew how to do that. So the fact that I was unqualified was okay. They thought that I could learn. And so I, I learned about blockchains in the context of Ethereum, which means in the context of decentralized applications. So what was interesting about it to me from the outset was that you could write applications which don't run on servers. You can write applications which nobody owns or controls. So that was very interesting to me at the outset. You could have these unstoppable, uncensorable applications. The way this works kind of at a, at a very high level. So if you understand Bitcoin to be a ledger which keeps track of accounts and their balances, like you can kind of abstract Bitcoin into being a, a spreadsheet that the miners maintain a state of consensus over the state of that spreadsheet. What Ethereum is, which is a programmable blockchain, the thing that the miners are maintaining consensus over, instead of a spreadsheet, it's a virtual computer. So we have this thing called the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine. It's you know very much, it's like the JVM, for example, the Java virtual machine, just a lot, a lot simpler. So just like you know, in Bitcoin, miners keep track of the spreadsheet. In Ethereum, we keep track of this, of this virtual computer. And transactions that go into the system are inputs to programs on the computer. Mm-hmm. This is a decentralized application platform, and much like the JVM, it's running multiple applications at any given time, except it's a much bigger computer than any single JVM that we would think about. Yeah, arguably. Well, I mean, not, not even arguably. It's less performant than the JVM. One thing that's still not solved in blockchains is, is scalability. So we have this, this world computer, but it's, it's single-threaded which eventually we are going to have to solve if blockchains are ever going to get serious. Hmm. Now, before we get into that kind of stuff, at a higher level, this idea of the internet as a failed peer-to-peer system, like the traditional internet, we discussed this on a show about Urbit a while ago, Mm -hmm. and 
basically the the sensation I got from that show was that there are certain traditionalists who have been around a while who basically believe that the internet doesn't live up to its expectations. Like the original expectations were this is a peer-to-peer system where I transact with you and you transact with me and we don't have to broker our relationships through some centralized agency like Google or Amazon Web Services or Comcast. Is that accurate? So you can use the internet as a peer-to-peer system. You know, we've built blockchains on the existing internet. Those are those are peer-to-peer systems. So you know, the underlying infrastructure of the internet arguably is fine, like not not perfect in terms of being decentralized. Like eventually we want to move towards mesh networking, but like the, the internet, its physical infrastructure is kind of okay. The web, mm-hmm. however, which is like the application that, you know, my, my grandma uses, which everybody uses, the web tends towards centralization in a big way. And, you know, this, everybody knows this. This is not novel to say this, that Google knows absolutely everything about you because you, you touch Google services 100 times a day, even without knowing about it. You know, just by being on a page that serves ads through Google's ad network, you know, Google is learning more about you constantly. And then we, we see things like last year in, in 2016, I think it was in the, in the fall, there were these attacks on the DNS system. DNS is not like a commercial system, but it is a centralized system. It's a hierarchical system, which eventually you can, you can get to the top of. They're the root DNS servers. And there were DOS attacks against the, the DNS servers. So I think we are realizing as the web becomes more critical infrastructure in our daily lives, we are realizing that its centralized tendencies are brittle. You know, if you take down the, the root node or the central server, everything breaks, you know, every, every other edge in that graph becomes useless. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think we're just realizing that this centralized tendency is, is brittle and perhaps not ideal for a system as important as the web. I agree that it would be great to have this decentralized application platform where there are things that do not get brokered by a centralized entity. With Bitcoin, the, as you said, the blockchain is just used for financial transactions, even on Bitcoin, we've gotten to a point where the transaction volume that is able to be processed is pretty bottlenecked, and this is leading to some problems, it's leading to some arguments for a fork. And as you were saying earlier, on Ethereum, we have similar throughput issues. Why is there a canonical issue of throughput or multi-threadability when it comes to these blockchain platforms? Sure. So first I would say that Bitcoin and Ethereum's scaling issues are, are different. So they share some scaling issues, but the one that Bitcoin is hitting right now is not one that Ethereum would hit were it subject to the same traffic or, or transaction volume as Bitcoin. So in Bitcoin, when the system was originally designed, there's a one megabyte cap on the total size of transactions, which can be validated in a block. These blocks come along every, every 10 minutes. So every 10 minutes, we have new state that is written to the, the Bitcoin you know, database, essentially. And you can think of it as a database. It's a decentralized database. So when the system was designed, there was a one megabyte cap on that. Satoshi Nakamoto disappeared in either 2012 or 2013. And there's a huge amount of debate in Bitcoin whether this one megabyte cap is important, whether it matters. And there are valid arguments on both sides. Some people say we need to keep the block size at one megabyte. Some people say we need to increase the block size to two or four or eight megabytes, or we need some sort of dynamic block size. And there are some people who even say that the block size should be smaller. So Bitcoin's scaling problem, like the the present problem that they're facing, which is really like bad for the network. I love Bitcoin. I'm an Ethereum developer, but I mean, Bitcoin's great. I'm a pretty savvy user of Bitcoin, given my, my day job. But Bitcoin is hard to use because, you know, you can wait hours, even days now for transactions to get verified due to the traffic. So they have this issue with their block size. On Ethereum, we have a dynamic block size. So miners can vote on what they want the block, we call it the gas limit, to be. So we could have, you know, in theory, higher transaction volume than, than Bitcoin does. However, we would eventually, we would eventually hit a limit because there is a requirement in all blockchains. Well, there's a requirement in Ethereum. We won't get into like the subtle argument of whether transaction ordering is actually like 
necessary in Bitcoin. But so in Ethereum, all transactions have to be run in a certain order. Now the miner, the person who validates the transactions and, and wins the block, they can decide what order those transactions get run in. But as soon as they've won that block and they broadcast it to everyone else, all the other miners have to replay those transactions in the exact same order. And if they don't do that, they're going to wind up with a different system state than the original miner and the system goes out of consensus. So just the, the fact that all of these transactions need to be run in order after their mind means that the system is essentially single threaded. Even if we had in the EVM like facility for, you know, multiple threads because threads like, you know, run in non-deterministic ways, you know, two miners could get different, different outputs. So that is a problem which longer term, there is a roadmap for solving it. It's still all like in the theoretical stages. And I would guess that we're years away from a scalable blockchain. What the, the solution will be is not threading. The solution is going to be something called sharding. So we'll have a, a blockchain that we split into shards. All these shards will still be single threaded, but these there will basically be like a blockchain of blockchains that keeps the shards in sync with one another. The reflex here is to go towards centralization, basically, because like I talked to the Blockstream people about a year ago, and I don't remember my conversation super well, although it's a podcast episode, I should probably re-listen to it. If I recall, what they were saying was in order to, you know, whether or not we're going to keep the Bitcoin block size at one megabyte, you can use these side chains or lightning networks, I think they're called, Mm -hmm. where you could have people who are validating transactions on the side at a higher rate than the core Bitcoin protocol can do. And then maybe you get a bucket of transactions that have all been validated on the side and they get rubber stamped by somebody like Blockstream or whoever else is the the rubber stamper of that bucket of transactions, which takes up less bandwidth than it would be if there was everybody just, you know, stamping every transaction. Assuming I'm I'm right about what I just explained, that creates centralization points. Now it's a more granular, subtle amount of centralization, certainly than we have on the modern internet today. But it is a tendency towards centralization. If you could you could see the same thing happening on Ethereum where you say, okay, we're gonna shard this virtual machine into some points of centralization, some points of decentralization. Maybe, you know, some of the shards are paid for with anonymous payments and we have no idea who's supporting the compute behind them, but nonetheless the compute payment is decentralized. You could see some shards that are controlled by Amazon Web Services, some shards that are controlled by Google, some shards that are controlled by the CIA, maybe. Mm -hmm. Am I portraying the world that we are going towards where it's more of a mix of centralization and decentralization accurately? Well, first of all, the CIA does control all blockchains. Yeah, so we already live in that that world. That's a joke. They don't actually, I hope. So, okay, there were like many interesting points that you hit on in your preface to this to this question. There are like five things we could address. So one, the tendency towards centralization, even in the context of blockchains. Any blockchain engineer will tell you that you can do things more efficiently in terms of throughput in any kind of application using a centralized architecture. Even, you know, 10 years from now, I think it's going to be a long time, if ever, before we get to a place where decentralized systems can perform the way that centralized systems can. So the project that I'm working on right now is related to solving various issues in in web advertising technology in a decentralized way. Programmatic advertising is hugely scaled, like like millions of messages per second, you know, trillions of messages per day. You know, Ethereum would just would just die if we naively shoved all that onto the blockchain. So Bitcoin has this notion of payment channels. In Ethereum we have we have a notion of of state channels. They're essentially the the same in a way, they're, they're the same thing. So the way these work, in essence, so we have some virtual machine, whether it's the Bitcoin virtual machine or the Ethereum virtual machine. We know the state of that virtual machine on the public network. So say we have the Bitcoin blockchain. We, we know what the Bitcoin blockchain looks like because it's public. We can run our own nodes. If you and I are going to engage in like a large number of, of transactions together, whether at a high volume or just like you know a large number over a long period of time, it might make sense if I'm buying coffee from you every day to just like put down say $100 in escrow on the Bitcoin blockchain and then set up a state channel or a payment channel between the two of us 
where I sign messages to you. These are valid Bitcoin or Ethereum transactions. I sign these messages. They have my signature on them. I send them to you. You hold on to these things knowing that you can push them to the blockchain at any time. At any time, you can take the amount of money which I've signed to you off-chain out of the escrow that I've put down on-chain. At any time, you can do that. You don't have to trust me for the duration of our, of our engagement together. So this allows us, for example, over time to not pay transaction fees every single time I buy a, a cup of coffee. So on Bitcoin, for example, where transaction fees are getting rather high, like 10 to 20 cents and maybe even more than that, you know, if I'm buying a, a coffee for a buck 50, I don't want to pay a 10 or 20 cent transaction fee every time. We should just settle. You know, once I bought $100 worth of coffee from you, you know, net that out, pay 10 or 20 cents to, to net out that entire $100 thing. So it's useful for like saving money on network fees in the context of you needing to do things with like extremely high throughput, you know, in any application where there's ad tech or like high frequency trading, you know, people need to be exchanging messages at much faster than a 15 second block interval. The same thing applies. We sign messages back and forth to one another. Either one of us knows that we can go to chain at any time and we don't really need to trust one another. Like as soon as either of us misbehaves, you know, either refuses to send a message back or, or sends a message back, which is malformed in some way, the other can, can go to chain. And there are a lot of different ways you can implement this in Bitcoin. There's the Lightning Network, and then there are also like other federated sidechain proposals. In Ethereum, we have a, a network called Raiden, which isn't out yet, but it's like a, basically a Lightning Network for exchanging tokens. And then there are like generalized state channels that, that you can write. I'm working on some state channel stuff right now. We're still waiting for like, you know, the super generic API that you can just be like, hey, turn my application to a state channel. That doesn't quite exist yet. You have to kind of design your application such that they can be channelized. But this is, this is technology that works today. It's, it's early technology, but like, at least in Ethereum world, in Bitcoin, they're waiting for SegWit to do certain types of state channels. In Ethereum world, we're not waiting for anything. We can do state channels today. I feel like I took that question, like, I don't know. I feel like I rambled a bit on that question. No, that's fine. I think I threw a lot at you and you did a good job of fielding as many questions as you could. Bitcoin versus Ethereum is not a question of like which is better, but where are the a question of where are the synergies? How do the organizational structures compare? And one interesting observation I always like to engage with people about is the fact that Ethereum has a leader in Vitalik Buterin. He's kind of strange, unconventional leader who has some really hilarious tweets. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin does not have a clear leader today. What are the pros and cons of these governance strategies or governance states? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so like I said at the beginning, I love Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is the, you know, the mother of all blockchains. You know, every blockchain descends from, from Bitcoin. So you know, I never want to like seem as though I'm I'm speaking ill of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is in a, a tough spot with their governance because they are running up against this practical, this, this very practical and very real issue of the network being congested and, and transaction fees going way up. Like kind of the, the dream of Bitcoin enabling micropayments at this time is on hold. It's possible that, that in the future they'll implement you know, SegWit and get side chains and lightning networks going. But we don't know. The, the community is split. There's the Bitcoin Unlimited crowd and there's the Bitcoin Core crowd. And there's some large mining pool, I forget which one, which is now mining Bitcoin Unlimited blocks. It actually seems possible that Bitcoin could fork, which for me as an Ethereum developer doesn't, doesn't bother me that much. I think forks are okay. For a lot of Bitcoin people, a fork would be a disaster. A fork meaning that there's one version of reality, essentially, which believes the network works one way and a separate version of reality, which believes the network works a different way. And they go out of consensus with one another. So they're in a tough spot. It's very toxic politically. I think even, even a Bitcoiner would tell you that their politics are toxic. What's interesting about developing for blockchains is because these are serverless applications, you know, like you don't own the server yourself. You can't just like choose to upgrade it unilaterally. You have to get, you know, consensus from the community and particularly the people who are mining the blockchain if you want to make upgrades to the system. So like development, you know, does have a political element. And the other thing about Bitcoin is Satoshi Nakamoto disappeared in 2013. You know, they, they did have a leader once, once upon a if time. If he was ever a singular human being at all. Yeah, it may have been a group. Yeah. But that, that voice disappeared. 
We have Vitalik Buterin, who's an awesome, awesome human being. Not only is he super smart, we're like we're just very lucky that he is the good, likable, and reasonable person that he is. Like Vitalik doesn't get mad. You know, he stays calm in all situations. Clearly not motivated by money. Yeah, no, not not at all. Like, so we have Vitalik. Other than as an intellectual pursuit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Vitalik is not, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme for for Vitalik. In fact, he probably has the most abstract view of what money even is. Probably more abstract than probably anybody else on the planet. (laughs) If there's anyone who, like, understands, you know, what happiness is i have to think it's vitalik because he he knows it's not it's not money so we have vitalik we also have a guy named vlad zamfir who's a super bright researcher i consider him a leader anyway and we have this like organization called the ethereum foundation which which provides direction for the ecosystem now if you're like a hardcore crypto anarchist you may not be into this idea for my part and i think for for the part of a lot of ethereum enthusiasts like we knew when Ethereum launched in July of 2015 that the Ethereum we have is not the Ethereum that we want. Like I said, all of this is like, you know, it's kind of fun, but it won't really matter if we don't eventually get to blockchains, which are both scalable and safe. And I would say that, you know, proof of work is not a sufficiently safe consensus mechanism for truly global and systemically important blockchain. So we know in Ethereum world that the Ethereum that we have is not the Ethereum that we want. And we knew this from the outset. So I think our community has a different mindset in that way. We've always known that we're going to have to do a bunch of hard forks to get where we want to go. One worry that I have right now is that the price of Ether has gone up recently. And as more people become attracted to this ecosystem, as the ecosystem becomes more systemically important in its current state, I worry that it's going to be harder to make the breaking changes that we need to make for Ethereum to be important in the long term. Because, you know, if you have a $1 billion blockchain, yes, that is a lot of money, but, you know, you can play with it more than if you have a, you know, a $20 billion blockchain, say. People get more skittish when that much money is, is locked up inside. So, you know, I think we'll be able to push through it. Our community is great right now. We have a really, really great community. Our community is going to get a lot bigger as Ethereum continues to grow. And I hope that we're able to continue to be brave and make the breaking changes that we need to make. I would draw a comparison between the governance of the cryptocurrency world and the governance of our current American democracy, where, well, there's a number of comparisons to be drawn. So, you know, you look at Trump and he's arguably hard forking the government. He's saying, look, we've been doing this certain consensus-driven long lead time to some bureaucratic motion system of government for a long time, and I'm hard forking it. I'm going to just throw out executive orders. I'm going to throw out my own version of the truth on Twitter in an atomic 140-character bombshell, and... And the establishment sits by in horror. I mean, I sit by in horror sometimes, certainly. I mean, this is not like a excuse of Trump, but it is a, you know, I'm curious about how it's going to turn out too, because if, if we survive it, if everything's fine, mm-hmm. then it's like how I stopped worrying and learned to love the hard fork, whether we're talking about government or Ethereum blockchains or... Or anything, you know, maybe it turns out we're just more resilient to extreme change than we thought. And if we are, then that's, I think it's a good judgment on how dynamic our U.S. government could be and, like, how dynamic our blockchains could be. Yeah, I understand the point you're making. I would say it is important to to note that Vitalik and the Ethereum Foundation are much less powerful right. relative to the Ethereum community even than, than like, say, the U.S. government is relative to the, to the population. And, and the reason is we have this dynamic with the miners who, like, v- Vitalik has zero executive power, zero. Trump has executive power, which he can exercise and, you know, ultimately, like, you know, he controls the intelligence agencies and the military and all that. Vitalik has zero executive power. The miners are the executives. Vitalik always has to convince the miners and convince the community that, you know, what he proposes are, are good ideas. Vitalik advocated for the Dow hard fork, but 
the Dow hard fork was a, a hard fought political process and like emotionally draining for everybody in the community. You know, this notion that like the foundation forced a hard fork on the community is completely false. It was a it was a hard fought political process and, and one in which which was like kind of beautiful in the end, because like you had people who, you know, had had long and serious conversations and by the end of it would like change their minds. You know, people were, were willing to listen to the other side and and, you know, change their minds as they came to new understandings of, of the facts. That kind of thing, I think, is going to be harder in the future just because our community, like I said, is getting bigger. But yeah, I would, I would make the important distinction that Vitalik and the foundation have zero executive power. Ethereum is not at all centralized in that way. Mm-hmm. You are working on AdChain right now. We had a show recently about AdChain. So you're working for Consensus, and Consensus is working on AdChain, I guess I should say. So Consensus is this venture studio. Maybe we'll talk about Consensus a little bit later, but let's talk about AdChain because we did a show about it recently. The motivation for AdChain is to have a shared ledger for advertising transactions. And for people who are unfamiliar with this problem, it's basically because when somebody gets shown an ad on the internet, oftentimes that display of an advertisement has been brokered through a number of exchanges based on information that is shared among different people. And there's a question over sometimes like, okay, what price was this paid for at time X? And was this actually shown to a human being? Was it shown to a bot? Yeah. And having a shared system of record where the different participants in the advertising auction ecosystem, which, by the way, powers the internet, you know, there's a question as to the validity of these these transactions, and can you know can we come to a conclusion about fair market value of advertising on the internet, which, by the way, powers how humanity thinks. So it's an important problem. So. Correct me if I'm wrong about anything and tell me what is motivating to you about AdChain and what are you working on within the project right now? Yeah, sure. So I can talk a little bit about AdChain. I can't tell you everything. We're going to have a, a big like uh, public announcement, I think, the okay. end of this month or maybe the beginning of April. So what I do on AdChain is I am... So Consensus is working with a company called MetaX out here in Los Angeles, MetaX is a web advertising company. They work on the supply side. You embed one of their video players in your web page, and they serve videos for you, and, and you get paid. They realized independently, we had never met them, they realized like a year, a year and a half ago, that they could solve a bunch of outstanding problems in the ad tech ecosystem using something like a blockchain. So like they, they just realized this independently. We got hooked up with them through a mutual friend at, at Microsoft. We were like very intrigued that this was an area where blockchains had applicability, which we hadn't thought about. Consensus is a, is a pretty sprawling company, and we like to think that we, that we touch everything. So what I'm doing on this project is I am Consensus's like embedded engineer, kind of. So I work with the Vidral engineers and, and with Vidral's CTO to, right now we've been designing what the system is going to look like and prototyping use cases and applications for the system what we're really looking to solve, at least with this first iteration of the system that we're going to come out with, is fraud in ad tech. So programmatic web advertising is like a you know $200 billion a year industry, approximately. The IAB, the something advertising bureau, I forget what that actually stands for. They're a major interactive. industry. I believe the it's interactive. Interactive advertising bureau, yeah. Their own estimate for the amount of fraud in this $200 billion industry is that it's at $10 billion. And this is the conservative estimate, the very conservative estimate, you know, from like the industry's own, you know, advocacy group. If you ask operators in the space in practice what they think, you know, the percent of fraud actually is, you know, you will hear numbers between like 10 and 50%. So the way we see it, it's like a, like a $20 billion bounty, essentially, on figuring out how to mitigate fraud in the programmatic advertising industry. So AdChain is focused on, on solving that, creating more transparent supply chains such that advertisers, for example, can be sure that it's real humans who are viewing their ads and publishers can be sure inversely that ads which they are serving, one, they're not malware, which happens in ad tech, and two, they'll actually be paid for them because there are all sorts of cases where publishers who are doing all the right things don't get paid when they should. 
One interesting thing which I've learned about since beginning to work on this project in regards to like disintermediating all the, the middlemen in ad tech, there is a technology called, it's referred to as header bidding. So the way ad exchanging works is the user loads a page, say it's a video player, the video player itself is going to send out a bid request to an ad exchange. The ad exchange will collect bids from the demand side and then like, you know, choose one of those bids and send that back to the player. There's an existing technology, which has nothing to do with blockchains, but which is really cool called header bidding, which disintermediates the exchange. It allows the, the video player to send bid requests directly to demand. Demand sends bids back to the video player, and then the video player just selects the bid that it wants. So this is super cool. A problem with header bidding or, or one barrier to adoption that they've had is that one utility of an exchange is that, in theory at least, they vet the participants. So, you know, your exchange makes kind of a weak promise that if you're an advertiser, your ads aren't going to get served to bots. And if you're a publisher, you know, you are not going to end up serving ads that contain malware or maybe contain inappropriate content or, or whatever. These promises wind up being really, really weak because exchanges make deals with ad networks and those are like arbitrarily deep trees. So they're not really auditing every member of the exchange. Anyway, this is in theory a utility that, ex that exchanges provide. We... And when we release our white paper, you can read about this. One interesting thing we've done is come up with a means for supply and demand to identify one another in a decentralized way without having to like pay anybody for that privilege and conduct header bidding peer-to-peer. -peer. And, and they, you know, there's just no longer any need at all for an exchange because we solve the, the, like, the identity and discovery problem. And we give it away for free because we can do that on the blockchain. Yeah, we're, we're going to have a white paper coming out either at the end of this month or, or the beginning of, of April, which will describe okay. the system more, more in depth. Okay, so let me give you some counter arguments to sure. why I think AdChain has maybe some, some conceptual work to do, or maybe I just don't understand it properly. Mm-hmm. Google and Facebook control advertising on the internet. Neither yeah. of them are really willing to talk about ad fraud. I know this because I've repeatedly tried to get people from those companies on the show to discuss online advertising and online advertising problems. They don't really seem to care. Yeah. The executives don't really care. And furthermore, the only people who would have a vested interest in solving ad fraud are... Basically, the brand ad I mean, well, the people who would have the most interest in solving this would be the brand advertisers, or basically people who are spraying and praying with their advertising budgets, where you have like, you know, brand advertisers like, I hesitate to name names, but I'll name names anyway, like Coca Cola or McDonald's yeah, yeah. or Procter and Gamble sure. or Ford, these companies that probably don't have a great understanding of how much of their advertising budget is going to bots and bot fraud. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, nobody knows. Like, there's no convincing audit that I have come across and I've talked to basically the most scientific auditors or most of them if there's if there are more I'd love to have you on the show if you're an expert in this and you're listening to this episode so nobody can audit this the Procter and Gambles and Fords and McDonald's of the world don't really care about this because they don't know about it and because their advertising budgets are controlled by people who would rather just sign the check and get on with their day than tackle what advertising fraud is and then you have these solutions that come out that sort of try to thread a little bit of the needle, you know, for, for publishers, for example. Like if you're a publisher, you know, you want to be able to tell your advertisers or your advertising networks that, yeah, we filter some of the bad traffic. So you get one of these little JavaScript tags on your page that supposedly filters a lot of the bad traffic, except there's actually plenty of markets that will give you fake bot traffic that can make mm -hmm. it past these yep. these little things. I, I don't want to name, again, this is something I really don't want to name any names on because, I mean, I've had one or two of these companies on the show to discuss, oh yeah, how do you block bot traffic? And they're like, oh, we do this thing with machine learning. And yeah, I'm yeah. like, okay, so how does it work? And they're like, well, it works this way. And I'm like, okay, so that doesn't work. So why, why are you selling this to people? And they're like, no, but it yeah. works. And it doesn't work. Well, and well, it's it's interesting. These these are safety vendors is exactly. what, what you're referring to in, in the existing web ad ecosystem. What's kind of interesting about the incentives of safety vendors is that they depend on the continued existence of fraud for their business to to exist. So like in a sense, they're only incentivized to mitigate fraud 
to the extent that their competitors are, and it becomes like a slow race to the bottom. And a lot of safety vendors, I think most safety vendors think it's like standard practice. I believe, I hope I'm not misspeaking, I've been told they do get paid on a CPM basis. So like if, they, if there's like 10,000 impressions and they identify 9,000 of them as fraud, they're only getting paid for, for 1,000 impressions. So safety vendors have kind of like weird incentives in the system. And I think for that reason, kind of a fundamentally imperfect solution. They're, they're a Band-Aid. I, I, well, I completely agree. And where I'm going with this is, what will keep AdChain from being yet another safety vendor Band-Aid that a publisher can slap on their website and say, hey, we're AdChain protected, when in fact, unless you get buy-in from Google and Facebook, it doesn't really matter how many layers of safety vending you have on your website, yes. you're still going to be obfuscated from, from the truth according to Google and Facebook. Yeah, so there's going to be multiple like stages to ad chain. Like what we launch with is not what we eventually want to be doing. So at time zero, when the system launches, so in the current like game, if you think of, of this in like the context of kind of very basic game theory, in the current game of web advertising technology, fraudsters can win and honest actors can lose. Like these are both possible outcomes in the game. What we're doing with AdChain in the initial iteration is we are providing cryptographically provable guarantees of remuneration in instances of fraud. So what this essentially amounts to is like an insurance pool for the advertising industry. Like you will ultimately, well, it it depends. You may end up paying some small premium for the guarantee that if you get hit by some like, you know, significant fraud event, you can get paid back for that. And you can see on yourself that the funds to do so are, are locked up on the blockchain. The way that changes the game is that fraudsters, because to participate in ad chain, they'll have to be you know, putting up some money up front. They can't win as much. And publishers, who are the people who end up you know, not getting paid in the industry, they will not lose as much. So we like improve the dynamics of the game a little bit. Longer term, so this, this is even you know, probably medium term, not even long term. What we want to do is allow all actors in the system to rationally assess what their risk is by participating in a given what we call an ad market. So ad markets, there will be you know, multiple ad markets in the ad chain ecosystem, and like it's open, anyone can create an ad market, it's a totally, totally free market. Ad markets essentially set rules by which publishers and advertisers have to play to exchange ads with one another. So one kind of rule set that an ad market may propose, for example, is that every participant in the system has to use the same bot detection technology. And it's, it's like an open source, you know, JavaScript thing that, that runs in all, the, in all the web ads. If you are a publisher, you know, this is an open source program, you can vet it yourself, you say, okay, this thing, you know, says that I'm serving bot traffic, you know, 20% of the time, when I know because I'm me and I trust myself, you know, 5% of my traffic is bots. You can know that transparently and then adjust the prices that you charge for your impressions on that basis. And then similarly, or like the other side of that coin is we can enforce in an ad market or an ad market could enforce that demand advertisers have to pay. They may have to lock up funds. They have to pay for impressions which are cleared as payable by this this open source you know javascript bot detection engine so in the happy path like that all works publishers are rationally pricing their impressions on the basis of how many payments they expect not to receive based on how this javascript engine performs and advertisers are not paying for bot traffic and if they believe in this open source javascript engine you know they they feel good about that of course we always believe that things will go wrong like there will be you know, some new bot that comes out which evades detection before the, the engine is patched. And, you know, in that case, whichever side of, of the engagement got the short end of the stick due to this fraud, they can make a claim with their ad market. And we have all sorts of stuff, which the white paper describes, which like enforces logging for impression events. They can provide their logs to their ad market. Their ad market can make a decision as to whether or not fraud occurred. And if so, they can pay these people out out of this collateral pool. So, okay, so that's like issue- phase two. And then like longer term, we'll have things like, you know, uport identities where like that's when fraud just totally goes away because we'll have like these on-chain reputation systems, like very strong KYC that just exists in the fabric of the internet. Now, 
I respect that roadmap. It makes sense. If you can get an open source bot detection system that actually works. My yeah, so, criticism... So I'll, I'll make the point just real quick. That okay, this, sure. This open yeah. source bot detection system that I talked about, not something that the ad chain protocol cares about. Like I said, ad markets, it's an open competitive market. You know, we hope that someone would come up with something cool like that. But yeah, you, would, you would need it though, right? Not necessarily. I think there's all sorts of improvements that ad markets can make like short, short of that. Fundamentally, the biggest problem is the bots. Yeah, for sure. That's the biggest issue. In, and in so if tech. you can't detect a bot, then you can only really make incremental improvements on the ecosystem. Maybe you can do some stuff around auctions or like that kind of stuff. But mostly the fraud is based on can you detect if this user is a bot or not? I mean, is that right? Yes, essentially, yes. Okay. Okay. So the thing I think that is going to be a shortcoming is that ultimately the way that a human operates, like the way that something that is close enough to the average human operates a computer browser, like going to Facebook, making a Facebook account, going to Twitter, making a Twitter account, going to Gmail, making a Gmail mm-hmm. account, going through the internet, clicking on tweets, like, oh, Donald Trump tweet, I'm going to tweet on that, I click on that, respond to it maybe. It's systematic enough that it's just a Turing test that you cannot solve. You mm-hmm. cannot make a bot detection system that is going to be good enough unless, basically, I mean, back to our centralization versus decentralization question, unless you are Google and Facebook and you can develop a really, really rich identity system, or, I mean, maybe that's the the version three of the roadmap that you were talking about, this KYC thing, but even then you have, then you have like a decentralization of your privacy or your identity or whatever. You kind of need this homomorphic encryption sort of thing where like some broker out there is collecting your private information because the private information is what's I think is like the the unique hashed stamp of are you a bot or not. Mm-hmm. I think the public information is replicable enough to be always subject to a replay attack. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm mistaken. But one way or another, if you're somebody out there who actually cares about stopping bot traffic from stopping advertising fraud and by the way, like I think what AdChain is doing is like kind of noble. It's a great business idea, like a great long-term, long-lead-time business idea. I think it'll be very profitable for the people working on it. But if you're actually interested in the noble pursuit, and I do think it is noble, of stopping advertising fraud or at least minimizing it, I think you have to speak out really loudly and get people at Google and Facebook to notice. Because for the conceivable future... These are the brokers of whether advertising fraud is stoppable or not, and they are doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so two things. One I'll say in regards to the detection of of bots and our ability to detect them. I definitely agree that it's a a hard problem and certainly not a solved problem. But bot systems do get detected, not always expediently, but you you may have heard about MethBot a few months ago. It was this bot farm that was pulling in like $5 million a day in illicit revenue, you know, Methbot eventually was detected by, I think it was White Ops who came out with that report. In a system like AdChain, which has cryptographically guaranteed remunerations in instances of fraud, this would allow people who were hit by, by Methbot to recoup at least some of their losses, which I think would be, would be kind of cool. Then in regards to needing to bring Facebook and, and Google aboard. So one thing that's interesting in using blockchains in ad tech. So what is the reason that like Google and Facebook control, you know, 85% or 90%, whatever it is of, you know, web advertising revenue. A big part of it is because they have control over their entire web advertising stack. Like they don't have these complex and and opaque supply chains. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's the advertiser and then it's Google all the way down, you know, and, and because of that, they're able to make much stronger assurances that, you know, they're not serving ads to, to bots or whatever. For sure. Use, yeah. So when you bring a blockchain into play, when you have this like single shared database that multiple parties can interact with as though it were, it's logically a centralized database, even though in fact it's a decentralized database. When you can bring together multiple parties and have them all play by the same rules and like see into that supply chain transparently, I believe you can empower them to essentially like have the same superpowers, if you will, that Facebook and Google have in like 
having these these full stack monolithic integrated supply chains. I agree here, like, you know, centralization is efficient. It works. You know, Facebook and Google are, are able to root out fraud in their ecosystem because they control their whole their whole stacks. And you sell your soul to them and you also pay them a, a premium in exchange for that privilege. Bringing programmable blockchains into play, I think we can give this away essentially for free. We can make it like a public utility. Let everybody have, you know, control of a logically monolithic advertising stack the same way that Facebook and Google do, but nobody is going to like extract a rent from you for that. So the thing is, the reason Google and Facebook can build these monolithic advertising stacks is because they have an incentive structure in place where they say, okay, we're going to collect tons and tons of information about you, but we're going to keep it under top secret, like confidential encryption and whatnot, because that is what our business rests upon. Like if the information about you leaks, that's really horrible for our core business. And then people are going to stop giving us identifying information. Whereas if you're talking about a decentralized Mm -hmm. identity format, what is the incentive of the decentralized database to keep that private? So this is important to note. The AdChain project is going to be run by an organization called the AdChain Foundation, which will be a not-for-profit. The AdChain Foundation will have some some operating costs, but like this is not a a for-profit entity. Presently, in the web advertising ecosystem, the collection of personally identifying information is like perhaps the only thing in the ecosystem that is at all regulated. Compliance with these PII laws is, you know, scattered and, and not really enforced. At present, the ad chain protocols don't describe anything in regards to dealing with personally identifying information. That gets pushed down to the ad market level, and you know, they will need to follow regulations on that right now. But the what the ad chain protocols are concerned with are allowing demand and supply to exchange with one another in a peer-to-peer way and in a way that, that they can trust one another. Because the problem with these peer-to-peer transactions right now is you don't know who you're dealing with. We want to provide strong guarantees that if you are a victim of fraud, that's not going to be a huge hit to your business. Presently, we may in the future, but at present, we're not actually dealing with you know, the issues of, of user data and personally identifying information. Right. Now, we would love it if people like built businesses and built services like on the ad chain protocols that, that handled information in, in useful ways, but it's not something that the protocols themselves express an opinion on. Do you think that a publicly funded foundation, the ad chain foundation, do you think that they can secure data and have the right granularity of exposure of personal data versus keeping the right amount of it private that a Facebook or a Google has the resources to do? Well, so all the ad chain foundation is concerned with essentially is keeping these collateral pools, Mm. you know, locked up. So what the ad chain foundation does, what it concerns itself with is making sure that what we call in the system, they're called registrars. They sit below the ad chain foundation and above the ad markets. They need to make sure that that the registrars are properly collateralizing their pools on the basis of the total balance of disputable payments like in their, in their subtree in, in the system. That's the ad chain foundation's concern. And if those collateral pools are not properly funded, setting flags in that subtree of the system saying that, okay, if you do business in this subtree, you know, all bets are off. The protocols are not going to guarantee that you can be you know, paid out in, if you're a victim of, of fraud. So the ad chain foundation is providing that signal is what it's doing. At least at time zero, what the future holds, yeah. who knows. I like the idea of ad chain, I'm going to be very interested to see how it plays out. I like the idea of the status quo of advertising, of online advertising, which is not very old, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm sure this will be, quote unquote, disrupted. I'm sure the incumbents will be assailed over the coming years. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that Procter & Gamble and Ford and American Express will all wake up to this at some point. So, you know, advertising is advertising, but also advertising is is media and advertising exactly. is is culture. It's a part of exactly. like, the reality that we experience. I don't want to live in a world where Facebook and Google control all of the advertising that I see. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's just not even like I've done a bunch of shows on this. And the reason I keep reporting on it is because it affronts me in so many ways. Like it's a fr- it's intellectually it's an affront because I'm like, Okay, Google and Facebook, these companies that are technology companies. I'm like, actually, 
a lot of their money is just made off of like ads that are being served to bots and I don't yeah. know how much so I can't totally pass judgment on them but they're certainly not disclosing how much but it's also an affront because the advertising content most of it's just awful and I'm like why am I seeing this garbage all over the internet why is it 2017 and half of the images that I see on a page are just garbage and they're forgettable and I don't even my mind doesn't even process them and I have to imagine a lot of other people are like that and then there's the third problem. You know, some people call this the fake news problem or whatever. I would just call it the horrible link-baity and sometimes hoaxy content across the internet that is driven by these botnets and by this advertising flow that's hard to hard to control and yeah. hard to regulate. Like that's why you see ten ways that acai berry will clear up your acne, <laughs> like on you know a random web page on the internet. It's just. Uh, so it, it just personally affronts me in so many ways. I'm just like, ah, oh, so done with this advertising problems. I just wanted to go away and be fixed. What we like fundamentally want to do is empower the like remaining, you know, 15% of the industry that isn't under the thumb of Facebook and Google. We want to empower them to compete the way that Facebook and Google do, and then make sure that as advancements happen in web advertising. They happen publicly and open source and outside of the Google and Facebook stack. This duopoly, the Facebook-Google duopoly, it's not going to last. Like, there is no way it's going to last because there are enough engineers in the world who just don't really like this state of affairs. I think probably even people within Facebook and Google, maybe even Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page are like, we don't want this duopoly. Or maybe it's people at Amazon or whatever, but... It's, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel productive. And I think there are going to be more flowers blooming in, in the near future. I mean, at least I'm optimistic. Are you optimistic? Yeah, that's, you know, we're, we're getting this garden ready and hopefully a lot of web advertising flowers bloom in it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a ton of stuff we didn't get to. I had like two pages of questions and I asked barely any of them. But Mike, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for having me on. Wow.